This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. The world seems to be collapsing as it's being hit by a number of concurrent crises. The coronavirus, the collapse of oil prices, a number of nasty wars in the Middle East, and at the same time we have the climate crisis running on in the background. I talked to Anders Asland, a Swedish economist and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, to get his take on what's going on. So Anders, very nice to uh, be and talk to you again. Um, here we are yet again in another huge crisis, um, although everyone says that this one is worse than the one in 2008. Um, but there's a disagreement, this being a public health crisis. Uh, some of the bankers are saying public health crises are deeper, uh, the shock is greater. However, the bounce back is faster because nothing's destroyed. The longer it goes on, then you start getting into faults and it becomes more serious. But as an economist yourself, um, do you think this is going to be V-shaped or U-shaped? Is it as bad as 2008? Is it worse? Uh, I think it's worse. And uh, you have now a, comb- a combination, you can say, of uh, uh, three crises. You have uh, f- first uh, uh, an oil crisis. The central bank last year assessed uh, that uh, it would mean 4% of GDP less if it was uh, $25, $25 per barrel in uh, <clears throat> oil price. We have, uh, uh, of course, the health crisis, about which we know very little, but it would be reasonable to say that uh, the Russian economy, to a considerable extent, will close down for three months, and that would be uh, the fall of uh, 8% of GDP or 6% of GDP. And then we have a financial crisis, which inevitably will be coming, but we don't know much about it, because there will be lots of bankruptcies, there will be uh, defaults. Mm. So this will be a big crisis. Um, uh, Just uh, to take it loosely, this would uh, mean uh, 10% of uh, GDP decline or so. In uh, 2009, Russia's uh, GDP fell by... 7.8%. 7.8%. So this will be uh, probably a b- a bit worse. Yeah, worse. And then the question, uh, how fast it will recover afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it's the stop shock, isn't it? I mean, you basically turned the entire economy off. And so people, uh, sectors in the front line, obviously retail, tourism, airlines, those are bleeding money. Um, but there is this point about um, the the damage that's done. If you had a financial crisis like in 2008 and you have uh, massive defaults, um, margin calls, all those sort of things, um, they do long-term damage. Uh, they create debt that needs to be paid down. Everyone's GDP debt after 2008 went. The Maastricht recommended level was 60% of GDP and everybody's up at 100 and, and beyond. Um, however... As the virus seems to be starting to burn out now, as we're having an increasing number of countries led by Austria in Europe who are starting to talk about at least easing restrictions, to what extent when the virus is presumably gone, assuming no second wave, um, sometime in July, August, to what extent can we go back to normal? To what extent will people be able to bounce back? 
Yeah, I don't uh, think that we should assume that there is not a, a, sec a second wave. We rather should assume that there will be a second wave. But this looks more like the Spanish flu, from which lasted from January 1918 until December uh, 1920. And in particular, in the U.S., it came in two big uh, waves, one in the sp uh, spring 1918 and one in the fall of 1918. What the WHO now says is that only 3% of the people in, <clears throat> in the areas that have been hit the worst have become immune. So it looks likely that there will be uh, a second waves. And of course, there will be financial crisis later on. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia's big advantage now is that it has big reserves and it starts out with uh, good finances. And we can see that Ireland that started out in a similar fashion in 2008, uh, in spite of getting a massive uh, public debt because of the uh, bank system collapsing, uh, has now come out very well indeed. Well, there's a big question. Um, Silianov, as you know, um, came out, uh, I don't know, it's hard to remember now, things have been going so fast, but a few weeks ago, and with the 12 trillion rubles, or whatever that is, 176 billion in cash in just the National Reserve, uh, National Welfare Fund, he was boasting that that's enough money at $25 oil to last a decade. Now, he's backtracked rather drastically since that, and last week was saying, no, they're going to have to spend half of that 12 trillion just this year in order to cushion the blow. But given everyone assumes that oil will recover somewhat, um, which doesn't seem to be certain at all, um, nevertheless, Russia's not going to be in the position where it's going to the IMF and that it can, uh, it has enough money to definitely go for a year, probably two or three actually, with the size of the reserves it has. And it hasn't raised taxes and it's got the possibility to raise debt because it has almost no debt. So there's a country that seems to be actually well prepared for various reasons. But the spread of countries is enormous. And if you compare Russia's situation to Ukraine, where they're verging on the edge of defaulting on their debt already, that this is going to affect particularly emerging markets in vastly different ways. Isn't there going to be like a... a um, a tier of, of strong countries, Russia, China is in the same position, and a tier of very weak countries who are going to be severely knocked back. Well, uh, the problem, uh, as your question indicates, is that we have many crises now at the same time. And uh, of course, Russia's strong suit is uh, its uh, uh, national finances. But there will be many bankruptcies of small companies everywhere. And uh, this is sort of a big question. How will this will handle? I think that the worst example is here in the United States. Mm. We have already 15% unemployment, 25 million people. And it will probably, uh, within two months, be 50 million people, 30% unemployment. That means that most restaurants and small shops um, have died all these uh, small uh, service companies, and they cannot come back uh, better. It's much better as in Europe, including Russia and Ukraine, that people stay on their jobs. Mm -hmm. They are, may not, might not be paid or paid a little for two, uh, two, three months, but they have jobs to come back. Then it's easier 
to instigate a fast recovery than as it will be here in the U.S., where the enterprises have effectively disappeared. The companies that have provided the premises have gone bankrupt, and somebody has to face all these bankruptcies in the financial sector. It's true that... Something like 40, 50 countries will probably do default. I would not think Ukraine will do so, given floating exchange rate mm-hmm. as Russia and quite large reserves that are now about uh, $25 billion. Mm-hmm. Let me flow um, a pet theory of mine is that the West actually in many ways is more vulnerable to these sort of crises in so much as the stability of the system uh, and the faith in that stability allows companies to leverage up. And that goes for small companies too, that you build your business on debts, you know, you borrow 20,000, 50,000 to build your restaurants. And that these crises, when you suddenly get a shock to your revenue, um, are enormously destructive. Whereas the very backwardness of Eastern Europe in particular that people can't raise that debt, that typically even the biggest companies finance 75% of their investment out of retained earnings. And as you know, bank uh, bank credits play a relatively small role. And the advantage of this, um, and it's it's the same at the personal level, that that typical American has at least a year's worth of income as debt, whereas a typical Russian or Ukrainian has um, two months, one month of wages. And you can go to your friends and family to raise that if you get into trouble. The result being is, although that makes you more volatile in the East, the, the, the lack of debt, that the immediate income has a bigger impact, you can bounce back more quickly because you're not laden with this burden. I mean, in the States, you go personally bankrupt if you can't pay 20 grand back. Whereas in Russia, if you can't pay 500 bucks back, you can go and ask your granddad. Yeah, I agree on that. And uh, the world as a whole has never been as indebted today. 350% of GDP if you take all private and uh, public debt. China is up there. So China does not look good from that perspective. But the former Soviet Union actually does, as you you rightly argue. You have another advantage. This hits uh, the personal service sector which is very small in the form of the Soviet Union. So it's a smaller part of the economy that is being hurt. Uh, Automotive uh, uh, and manufacturing has been hit hard. Uh, Russia has uh, very little of it, Ukraine hardly any, so they get less hit. But of course, Russia gets hit hard, very hard by the oil price falling so low. So I looked at it, uh, this will mean probably with current oil price that Russia loses 40% of its exports last year of $419 billion. So this is the big blow, while for Western Europe that is an advantage that the oil price... Can I I ask your opinion? Because the the, the whole OPEC plus deal that fell to pieces um, at the start of March, I mean, the reading a lot of people have given, and, and I subscribe to this too, was that um, Russia had decided, or maybe even you could say Sechin, the CEO of Rosneft, had decided that they were fed up with the states um, taking market share at the expense of the other OPEC plus members who were cutting production and the Americans weren't. And they decided to crash the market in order to destroy the um, 
shale industry there. But it seems that they've miscalculated because then with the pandemic coming on top of that and destroying massively demand, oil has fallen through the floor. And as we all know, the you know, WTI plan went minus um, in the last two days. Do you think that that's actually what happened? And in that case, has like Putin overplayed his hand and that now Russia has found itself in a really terrible position where they um, they could survive $25 oil, but they can't survive yeah. 15 or 5 or $0 oil? Well, I think that uh, oil will be low now for a long time. Uh, as we saw, the oil price from 81 to 2000 was $18.20 per barrel. I think that we are back to that. Uh, a couple of decades of low oil prices starting from 2014, and now it will be uh, very low. I think it was extremely foolhardy by uh, Sechin to pu- push it, and clearly he was the only one who pushed it in Russia. But and you, you think it was a, a calculated plan to go after U.S. shale? It was not just a hubris or, or whatever? I think that um, Sechin is better at hubris than at calculations. Uh, we have seen him causing two major uh, currency crises in uh, December uh, mm. 2014 and December 2016, which uh, strangely Putin allowed him uh, to do. So nobody destabilizes uh, Putin's Russia uh, and his own power. Than, um, than Igor Sechin. I can't understand that Putin allows him to go on. And what's the prognosis then for Russia if oil is at, say, $13 going forward? I mean, that's the price it was when Putin came into power. Um, doesn't that force Russia then? Because I've always argued that it's, it's, it can't go wrong. I mean, even the reforms can be bad because it, it enjoys this subsidy of the, uh, the oil revenue, which allows them to make mistakes or, or ignore reforms, and the country still functions because it always has cash. But if you take that cash away, I mean, then it seems to me either they have to make real reforms and make a real economy that works on everything else, or the alternative is repression, you know, to stop the complaining uh, and to save what resources and keep them amongst the elite. I, I think you're going to say it's going to be repression, isn't it? No, no. I think there will be reforms. I think uh, uh, we had these uh, two wonderful decades when the oil price was low. That was uh, uh, what Huntington calls the third uh, wave of uh, democratization, Mm -hmm. admittedly started in the uh, mid-70s in southern Europe, which was unrelated, but the rest was very much uh, uh, supported by the low oil price. High oil price means uh, a lot of money to authoritarian rulers and who also spend a lot of it on on uh, weapons. So I would expect that there will be less um, wars. Will Saudis continue in Yemen? Will Russia con- and Iran continue fighting in in um, Syria and all these countries that are in Libya? I think that these wars will simply uh, end in this fashion. So then low oil prices is a good thing. I mean, particularly for some of them, someone like Russia, um, who, who's aggressive and... Um, and it's become the power increasingly concentrated amongst the men who have access to those oil revenues, but they will be weakened and have to listen more to the people as a result because they're going to have to deliver, you know, other than just splashing cash around. 
Yeah, so we get democratization in uh, many countries when oil prices are low, and we are now seeing many of uh, oil countries being in terrible state, uh, Nigeria, Iraq, uh, mm -hmm. Iran to take the most, uh, and Venezuela to take the most obvious ones. Uh, Russia looks uh, right now comparatively stable, but it's highly dependent on uh, the oil price. And P Putin uh, looks tired. He has done so before and come back, so I don't uh, count, count him out. But uh, this is uh, a good opportunity for Russia to go for reforms and um, market economic reforms again and for um, democratization and uh, rule of law. And you can see here that Putin untypically has delegated power to the regional governors. And uh, people wonder, what will that mean now? And he does it at a time when you actually uh, would need centralized power yes, to manage. Yes. Uh, but isn't uh, that just to cover his ass in case it goes wrong? And, you know, if you believe that there's, the authorities knew that the infections were way higher than they were admitting to, then it, they knew it was going to go wrong. And he doesn't <clears> want this to stick to him, particularly when he's trying to push through this constitutional change that will extend his, uh, his, his term in office by another two terms. Yeah, but if you delegate power, you uh, have lost uh, that power. And uh, strangely, Putin behaves exactly like uh, uh, President uh, Trump. I take no responsibility. Mm. You mentioned, um, talking of reforms, and, and you've mentioned twice already that um, there are going to be financial crises, uh, and so far they're not. Um, uh, and that we were arguing or, or discussing um, recently, you and I, that there have been reforms. And in fact, it's one of the places where there's been quite dramatic reforms, or at least in my mm -hmm. opinion, in the banking sector, that Nabulana, since she came in in 2013, um, has closed down uh, two-thirds of the banks. I mean, we're down to like 400 now. Uh, and impose RFS9 and uh, prudential um, calculations have gone up. Basel three was implemented despite the sector kicking and screaming. Um, and the banking sector looks pretty solid. Uh, that the liquidity is good. Uh, the business is depressed. I grant you, profit, but the bank, it's back in profit already since the the near miss in 2017. But where are these banking crises going to come from? Um, uh, the ruble devaluation, having been through 2014, everybody sort of repaired the damage, but they've been a lot more cautious since then. I think everyone's a lot more cautious. Uh, and the, the other countries in the region, even Ukraine, the MBU has been doing the same sort of reforms that Russia's been doing, and their banking sector is looking pretty good. Yeah, what doesn't look good is uh, the economy. Uh, what has happened in Russia and also in Ukraine is that uh, state banks are now uh, uh, two-thirds of uh, uh, all banks. They, they are few. Uh, and uh, uh, they're essentially only uh, uh, dealing with the big state uh, state uh, companies and uh, very little with uh, uh, small and uh, small and medium-sized enterprises that are then being starved on on uh, credit and uh, uh, can't uh, uh, de develop. So we are seeing a large uh, sector both in Russia and Ukraine that essentially but that's absolutely true. But but it's not necessarily by design because uh, in both no, Russia not, and Ukraine. <laughs> They've been closing down these dodgy commercial banks, the, the famous garden ring banks in Russia, 
And Gontareva, um, the former governor of the MBU in Ukraine, did the same thing. She closed down, I think, 100 banks, cut the number of banks in half. <coughs> but by doing that, the state banks increased their share because they're all big. Uh, I guess the issue comes down to, um, in both Russia and, and Ukraine, the, the central bank is promising to sell these banks that they've taken over off, but they're not going to do that anytime soon. So by default, you end up with a much bigger state sector, um, which is unfortunate, and particularly for the SMEs, as you say. But isn't that just a function of this, the way this reform is being progressing? Uh, yes, but that's the problem. So uh, there's no place really for private uh, banking, and it's the private banks that are uh, servicing uh, most of uh, uh, the economy, the economy we want to, to develop, while the big state banks are indulging in all kinds of dodgy business. If you look up on uh, VTB, Roselkos Bank and Gazprom Bank, these banks are not making profits. Roselkos Bank is a steady uh, loss maker, VTB and Gazprom Bank just about go, go around. And they have um, been involved in all kinds of uh, very strange business, while Sberbank, on the other hand, uh, benefits from enormous monopoly uh, profits. It's true that it has been digitized in a very impression uh, fashion, but, but it's uh, effectively a monopoly bank for the, the ordinary citizens. So this is a very unhealthy uh, sector. And uh, uh, private banks cannot come in. This is why we saw the uh, three of the um, uh, five biggest private banks go under in the fall of 2017, because they have much higher funding costs than the big uh, uh, state banks. And therefore, they are tempted, not forced, but tempted into uh, very strange uh, business, uh, which eventually uh, <clears throat> brought them uh, all down. So what uh, Russia has failed to develop is uh, decent private banks, mm. and that remains to be seen. Last question, and very quickly, because we're actually almost out of time. Um, what are the political ramifications of this? Um, and there's two things going on. I mean, one is that Putin is looking increasingly exposed and that the Russian population are getting increasingly fed up with him. And this can be seen in the trust numbers. And the polls suggest, well, there's going to be no you know, color revolution in Russia uh, and that people are sort of happy for the strong man, the reliable man to deal with the crisis at the moment. They would like to see him leave. Um, and probably they would want to see him leave in, in 2024. And then on the other side, you've got the absolute catastrophe that is the uh, American political system. And if I may, you, you now seem to be as critical of Trump as you are of Putin. Uh, but to what extent is the American system like in collapse? From, you, from sitting here in Europe, uh, it just, it, the things that you see on, on Twitter and TV are just stunning. Uh, rank populism, blatant propaganda, insider trading, uh, the Ivanka making hundreds of millions of dollars from her association. And these are all things that we used to complain about Russia, you know, the corruption, the nepotism, the insider trading, sweet deals and what have you. I mean, to, can you compare the two or is it fundamentally different? 
You can compare the two when it comes to the political side. And the U.S. today is an oligarchy, while Russia is an authoritarian state. Russia is no longer an oligarchy. The big businessmen are not independent. They are dependent on Putin. So what we clearly see is a polarization. And then the optimistic view is that what I said, uh, uh, low oil prices uh, will promote democracy and uh, reforms, as in the 80s and 90s. The pessimistic view is that this is like the 1930s. Uh, we see a nationalism growing, increased state uh, ex expenditure, increased role of uh, the state, uh, protectionism, anti immigration uh, moves. The question is which of these two very contrary forces uh, uh, that will win? And to me, this is by no means obvious. The um, advantage that the States has is that nominally it has the checks and balances, the institutions um, <coughs> that will allow it to recover, to change president, to change direction. And Russia doesn't because uh, that's one thing Putin's failed to do. He's built a bureaucrat client system, which is all about people, uh, people in power. However, looking at the elections, what happened to Bernie Sanders, it does seem like there is an institution now of political elite and that democracy is not working. Uh, someone commented the other day, it's not who do you vote for, it's who's paying for the elections, and that is what swings it. But um, if you look at the two system, at least America has a system that can be fixed, uh, whereas Russia has yet to create one. Well, uh, in the U.S., uh, you have had a strong tendency for the last uh, two decades that the billionaires buy everything. They buy uh, low taxes, and therefore billionaires pay less taxes than an average uh, uh, American. They buy uh, good schools for their uh, children. It's called legacy. 20% of the best uh, universities uh, allow that uh, to, to be um, to sell places uh, at their universities to the uh, rich kids. And uh, then they buy regulation uh, so that they don't have to be regu regulated. And they buy the best uh, uh, lawyers uh, so that uh, no prosecutor who's elected uh, dares to uh, uh, attack uh, the, the very big people. We could see Paul Manafort, uh, his business that had been completely open for uh, four decades, uh, illegal, that uh, he only now, because of a, a murder investigation into uh, Trump's Russia affairs, got, uh, got sentenced uh, uh, to prison. Otherwise, he could have uh, continued with his obvious uh, money laundering and uh, tax evasion uh, for, um, until he, he died. So there, there is a sense that um, the system doesn't work. Uh, you can say that the people who decide in the U.S. is the president, mm -hmm. the Senate uh, majority leader, and the five Republican uh, judges uh, on the Supreme Court, and essentially only the chief uh, justice. So there are three um, conservative Republican who uh, co control the political system at present. The question is if this can be um, broken up. The checks and balances don't work today in the United States. Make but it sound to look like Russia. I mean, the same thing is they're locked into this Putin system and he is personally in charge of deciding who will replace him and that will set 
the direction for Russia in the next 20, 30 years? It's he won't be replaced. He will stay forever until he's, uh, he dies or until he's ousted. We shall Let's see. hope that it will be later. <laughs> we shall see. We shall come back into another podcast in 2024 and, and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Anders, thank you very much for taking the time. Always a thank pleasure you. to talk to you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Ben. Okay, take care. Thank you.